welcome to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that checks carefully, maybe a double, possibly even a triple check, every time we cross a railroad track, Amanda. That's not something you want to do lightly. It's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Great, great caution. I think, though, that I'll say compared to 1900s, early 1900s Dublin, I feel like our railroads are, you know, more thoroughly protected. Yeah, and also it's a good idea not to cross the the tracks if you are under the influence of anything. <laughs> that's right. That's right. There are a couple in the city we live in, there are a couple of crossings near, you know, like our downtown area and then areas that have like a lot of bars and restaurants and stuff, like high high volume pedestrian walking areas. So yeah. keep, keep it keep it uh, alert out there, folks, if you're <laughs> crossing some train tracks <laughs> and have been drinking or imbibing. If you have absolutely no clue why we're talking about such a risk, it is because you found a book club episode on the short story collection Dubliners, which is by James Joyce, a very famous author in the English kind of literary canon. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram under that handle, just at the Lightly Literary podcast and it's all one word so follow us there for updates and our reading schedule and we promote the episodes and the books we do and all that good stuff if you've never listened to a book club episode before these are our spoiler filled analytical sort of deep dive episodes about the work and we always do them in two parts so today we'll be discussing the first half of Dubliners Um, and since it's a short story collection the way we do those is that we each pick a couple stories to discuss we won't actually be analyzing all of them, but we could reference them, so that's what we'll be spoiling. Today we will go from, I believe it's The Sisters is the opening story, and then we read through the story called A Painful Case, which, at least in my edition, that was basically halfway. Is it the same? Yeah. For you? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Okay, perfect. I I assumed, but wanted to confirm. So those are the stories we read, and yeah, it's book club time. Amanda, any brief thoughts on uh, Dubliners before we kind of dive in? Uh, I've enjoyed it so far, but yeah, um, I, I, I've read, I don't know if you've read, um, a portrait of an artist as a young man. I had to read that for my AP English class. Oh yeah. And was not a fan of that, but this I am a fan of so far. (laughs) Yeah. It's been more accessible than the very limited Joyce I was exposed to in college. He, He is usually, we'll say, I guess his reputation is more of. I guess I'm just surprised. I'm hesitating because I guess I'm surprised that a high school teacher would even bother. You know, it's kind of like if you're teaching an AP high school class, you can sort of hit the objectives without having to fuss with something so maybe frustrating to read or something. Like you can kind of read simpler stuff and still hit all the objectives (laughs) that you need to for the class. Yeah, I always have just associated him with basically college only. It's sort of, um, okay, so you got into college and you want to do some literature classes. Now you can, you know, it's like you get the key to unlock the vault to the Joyce or something. (laughs) I also feel that way or felt that way about Virginia Woolf, but then I read a couple of things, uh, especially her nonfiction, um, you know, The Room of One's Own and other essays and stuff. I find that stuff quite readable, but her fiction has never worked really for me. I found it much more like difficult to to get into. So the, I associate them together. They wrote around the same time, right? No? Maybe? Different, yeah, different <laughs> circumstances for sure, but I, yeah, this that like modernist period. Anyway, yeah, yeah, Joyce, if you're listening to this and haven't read, it's, you know, he's got a reputation for sure as both a 
a titanic sort of figure, but also pretty dense and complex. This has not been so bad. This has been pretty accessible, I would say. And the short stories are very short. So if you haven't read Mm -hmm. and you're just listening for the spoilers of the discussion, then it's really not not the worst... um, not the worst it could be. It's maybe something. It's like the most accessible thing by the least accessible author, if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not been so bad. But if you've read, then let's get into the conversation. Uh, again, we've each chosen a couple short stories. We do not discuss all of them in short story collections because that would just be overwhelming and kind of pointless. And so, yeah, let's uh, jump in. Do you want me to start with one of mine or do you want to start one? I'll go ahead. Okay, then I'm going to start with, is it, uh, what are we going with here? Arabi? Arabi? I was, in my head, I was saying Araby. Well, because it's meant to refer to the sort of region of the world that they would have called maybe the or- Orient or what we might call like the Arab part of the world. So I just right. as too assumed it was Arabi, like Arab put, but with a Y at the end. That's also the spelling. Uh, so if you, again, haven't read these, it's yeah, literally the word Arab plus Y. So we'll go with Arabi. <laughs> um, this is a short story about an unnamed young man. I didn't get a sense of his age, but definitely kind of like a burgeoning youth. Uh, did he have a name by the way i i went back to double check briefly and i could not find a name no i think that he was nameless yeah a nameless young boy and you know what amanda he's kind of living a nameless young boy's life in a city there's really nothing exceptional the the early parts of the story set up that he lives in this drab you know plain neighborhood where everything's the same as everything else it's you know there's really nothing exceptional going on it's a pretty modest life and so that's kind of the setup except one thing jumps out which is that he is infatuated with his friend's sister who is definitely older than he is and i but again i couldn't get a sense of her exact age She's going yeah. to the convent sometimes, so she might be, I guess, like, in that line of work. I'm not sure how to phrase it, or if she's... Anyway, she's definitely older. You know, he steals glances at her. He's got his little crush, as, as we would today call it anyway, and she definitely entices him. Um, one day, she actually speaks to him. They usually... There's a line in there about something like, oh, he usually doesn't have the courage to speak to her, doesn't have the, you know, doesn't have the... Yeah, I guess the bravery to muster. But one day she talks to him and expresses that she has the desire to go to a local bazaar that's in town, and that's the Arabi or Arabi. And so that then entices him. He promises her that he will go and check it out and get her something because she's not able to. And she's like, oh, that, well, how sweet of you. You know, get me something. Get me a gift. And so the promise is laid down. Uh, it seems like he won't be able to go for a little bit. There's He tries to convince his uncle to let him go, and then he's, you know, he's stressed out all day because he doesn't think he'll make it. He eventually does make it to the market on time, though. He gets there kind of when they're closing, so there's people around, but not very many. And he is kind of wandering some shops, wondering if he can buy something, you know, to give to her, obviously. He then overhears kind of an odd conversation between a young woman and two men in a stall, she also asks him if he wants to buy something, but he's overwhelmed and kind of gets too nervous to purchase anything, and he just leaves in the dark at night, and that's it. He did, so really <laughs> dropped the ball and did not bring a gift back for his his unrequited love. Did I miss any plot details? I don't think so. Okay, yeah, that's that's the basics. Um, anything jumped out to you about this story? It's, it is a really compact coming-of-age story in a way. Yeah, um, dealing with unrequited love and stuff. Yeah, I what I picked up on um, it's on my page eighteen, and mm-hmm. it's when it's it's kind of like his stalkerish behavior. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's always watching and follow uh, following her. So he like 
will lay in the hall and look out of his um, the door window to watch for her before he goes to school. I think that they're both school age. Like, I think that he goes to the school for boys and she goes to the convent, which I think is the school for girls, is how I read it anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, education yeah. back then would have been, yeah, mostly a lot of it church-based. So, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. And uh, what I thought was funny is, like, he would wait, she would come out, and then he would, like, immediately follow. And then once there was, like, they would reach the part where, you know, left is to the convent and right is to his school or whatever, he would, like, run by her and not say anything to her. I thought Mm -hmm. that was just, like, really weird. And so he never actually initiates any interaction with her. And the only time that she actually they actually speak is when she initiates right right the the conversation and what does she want she wants something specific from him right she's she wants him to go and get her something which right. I found interesting so then at the end of the story um, when he's overwhelmed and can't really pick anything out and he's failed in his task essentially. Um, the the last sentence in the whole story is gazing up into the darkness i saw myself as a creature driven and derided by vanity and my eyes burned with anguish and anger mm-hmm. yeah it's definitely a frustrated that's why i hesitated it is a coming of age story but it's also a very stunted one i mean there's a lesson yeah. in there too i suppose but it is a it's a really a story of frustration you know, like yearning, yeah. frustration, unrequited love, whatever, however, whatever lens you want to apply to that, which, yeah, is a pretty interesting way to twist it. Yeah, I, I thought it was, I enjoyed it because it's like, he's, he's so, um, uh, well, I wanted to use the word stunted, but I feel like we've used that quite a bit, but he's just unable to, um, be, Aggressive, not I don't want to say aggressive, but he he's unable to, oh, to direct, kind honest, of, open. I mean, right. yeah, there's like so many positive ways to. I you know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and so the the only way that he has the possibility of getting what he wants is when somebody else initiates it. It's this like powerlessness yeah. that he feels, and it's just really highlighted at the end. And I thought that that was a really nice kind of way to portray that and I think that's actually kind of a common theme in these stories is the the idea of like this powerlessness that the people feel in the stories where they they don't take the opportunities to to kind of initiate things on their own and then they kind of flounder throughout the text and it's it's such a familiar I will say I picked this one I know when we texted about what stories we might pick this was the first one that came to mind because I will say I don't think I've been underwhelmed by this collection but it's been more I, I thought I would like it more than I have I would say you know it's like I'm a six out of ten with it and I thought I'd be an eight or something you know what those are arbitrary numbers but I, I, it's like yeah, okay so yeah some of these are really great and then I feel like some of them are kind of weirdly situationlessness or like lack of situation in a way I'm, I both admire and then I'm also kind of like I don't think I, I'm going to take much from this. Or I'm not going to remember much of this. So this was kind of just like a bleh, kind of bland 
exercise. But this one just felt quite literary, literarily clear to me, where it was like, yeah. oh, this is such a common feeling in your, you know, development as a person, your young sexual identity coming into being and, you know, having these, like, yearnings, these dreams and hopes for your, like, relationships and stuff. And then, of course, you never act upon any of it because you're figuring it out and you have no understanding or confidence or whatever. It just, like, was such a clear situation and, yeah, has such good subtlety to it too and mm-hmm. ends you know awkwardly for sure but then in a kind of a fitting awkwardness given that he doesn't really know this woman <laughs> this girl yeah um so many little sentences too work well uh, that i just wanted to pick out about when he's describing her when you're kind of introduced to her uh at one one point he says her, yet her name was like a summons to all my foolish blood which is a good you know very tantalizing description there's a couple introductory sentences to her one is her dress swung as she moved her body and the soft rope of her hair tossed from side to side and then later the light from the lamp opposite our door caught the white curve of her neck lit up her hair that rested there and falling lit up the hand upon the railing so it's really she's quite angelic and moves in a you know she's i guess like angelic would be the complimentary way and then like a ghost would be the less (laughs) specter haunting his life or something would be maybe the less fair interpretation um yeah, it's there's such good little kind of Bildungsromani qualities. I'm making up a lot of adjectives today. I don't know why. Yeah, <laughs> it's the, I, that's my that's I love the it. joy. It's coming out. That's what he inspires people to do. Yeah, it's like I'm just can I make up words? <laughs> um, but the I want to ask about the the conversation at the market because this might be the critical point of the whole story when his his you know love turns to folly. Uh, what do you think they were talking about? What do you think is implied in the conversation? Like, I think there's so many good literary things to admire in the story. I mentioned a couple quotes, but I, this is the part that creates a lot of perplexity, I think. And it, it obviously the story ends kind of quickly after that. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I'll just read the words to give to give a reminder of what they're saying. And again, he's overhearing this between. It says, a young lady talking and laughing with two young gentlemen. So that's... I don't know what's implied in that. I mean, we can sort of, they have accents as well. So it's a bit, it's a bit of exoticism maybe, but uh, obviously at the marketplace too, there's that element. But the conversation is, oh, I never said such a thing. Oh, but you did. Oh, but I didn't. Didn't she say that? Yes, I heard her. Oh, there's a fib. And then from there, she just asks if he needs anything. So they're kind of arguing in this, it seems like playful way. It's hard to tell exactly, but it seems like playful way about, you know, like, oh, you didn't. No, I didn't. Yes, I did. Uh, what do you think? How do you read that? Does it come across as sort of, I, I don't want to say sexual because that might be pushing the interpretation, but it seems you could almost make that context out of it if you wanted. I don't know. What do you think? I thought of it as like a flirting kind right, of right. conversation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's what I picked up on it. And, and also yeah. it's two Englishmen, right? Two Englishmen. I think so. It just I is. Their English I think it, young gentlemen, and oh, it could. Yeah, they could be English. Yes. Yeah, and but the so I think that the English accents were the men, but the girl I I thought was um, was Irish, was local. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it could be that could take on a whole other layer as well of because at the end he's like he's very put off by the, by the conversation which would make sense if like you know being raised to dislike uh England and and view them as colonizers um then yeah, it takes on a whole other layer of conversation, I think. Yeah, that's true. If you do interpret it, I mean, as we all know, a lot of 
it's hard to read any Irish literature without that lens. That's such a dominant, like, you know, concern of, of Irish, yeah. you know, independence and like relationship to England and all that kind of stuff. Let me, I'm double checking the lines here. It just says, uh, it just says two young gentlemen, English accents that you nailed. And then hers, a young lady came over. The tone of her voice was not encouraging. She spoke out of a sense of... That's another great line, though. She spoke out of me as a sense of duty, which, you know, he, he's got this... He's already in this kind of tense, romantic, attractive quest going on. And then, like, she, you know, is a bit cold to him. It's also they're about to close. <laughs> and so she's, yeah. you know, like, hey, you know, what the hell? We're, do you need anything? Can I help you? Um yeah, my stay was useless, he says. Anyway, yeah, no, I think that's another way you could analyze it. But I thought it was it was telling. There's another story I chose with a conversation that's kind of loaded. But, um, yeah, good use of kind of unexplained dialogue there. I think if this collection gets praised for – it gets praised for a lot of things, to be honest, in, in like, literary circles. But I could see why the dialogue gets some praise because it, it's often more subtle and also thematic, which is cool. Yeah. How about for Subtlety, your first story? I think is uh, is dub- is um, James Joyce's mm-hmm. big endearing thing for me here is <clears throat> I think that in most of, most of the the short stories that we've read thus far with um, in this collection I think that I, I enjoy the subtlety of like both the dialogue and also the way that he kind of uh, like leaves his some of the situations are open ended it's never explicitly stated mm-hmm. and the endings also are are pretty open-ended for the most part as well. Yeah, those I've enjoyed maybe the the most, but as we know, it's it's a preference of ours. I'm not sure what, what the wider world would think, but yeah. It's true. Yeah. Um, again, how about for your first story? Let's jump to another one. Yeah, um, I chose The Boarding House. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this one is Mrs. Mooney ran her own boarding house because she was unhappily married to a failed alcoholic butcher. Chase with the hatchet um, at some point. Yep, or the cleaver, yep. sorry, not the hatchet, the cleaver. <laughs> the cleaver, yep. Uh, she left him and took her children with her to begin her own successful business, which was the boarding house. Um, she's extremely pragmatic to the point that she's not always necessarily on the side of morality or, at the very least, like, social norms. Mm-hmm. Um, her daughter, Polly flirts with the bachelor tenants of the boarding house, which Mrs. Mooney is aware of, and she'll often curb, but uh, Polly finally sleeps with one tenant, Mr. Dorham. Doran, rather, whom Mrs. Mm-hmm. Mooney means to force into marriage. So she's aware that Polly's a flirt, and she's aware of, like, how far Polly will go, and she kind of allows Polly to do this. Um, Polly knows what's up and is just going along for the ride. Uh, Mr. Doran knows his social duty, but seems to kind of question that expectation, although he ultimately gives into it. Yeah. Another play on like a, such a relatable, I, I don't know, the social context of these stories have changed so profoundly in a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's, mm-hmm. bo- it both feels incredibly foreign to read some of these, but also he's picked up on such I- essential human feelings that it's. It's a weird thing, though. That's I guess that's how timeless literature kind of works, where you're like, wow, yeah. n- none of this makes any sense. But then also you're like, yeah, but at the core of it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So what did you what did you like about it, or did you like it? I did. This was one where it's I don't want to say it's situationless because the situation is obvious, but it's funny that and this is maybe just him doing a literary flex to to bring up the lingo to the 21st century. Like it's like he wrote the story before the story that most people would write. <laughs> like he doesn't he doesn't include <laughs> the confrontation, the resolution of the relationship. Like he and he doesn't also write about their courtship directly. He gives it through like a memory of the of the guy kind of remembering it and so it was just hilarious to finish the story and be like wow that's you got to be kind of bold to think i'm gonna write this little preface or prelude but not actually include the the meat of the matter (laughs) it's like i don't know it's impressive the the, to structurally do that and like have that be the thing the snapshot but in terms of timelessness just a couple quotes the thing i wanted to pick up was just the when he's remembering their sort of courtship uh, a couple paragraphs On nights when he came in very late, it was she, the daughter, who he falls for, who warmed up his dinner. He scarcely knew what he was eating, feeling her beside him alone at night in the sleeping house. And her thoughtfulness, if the night was any way cold or wet or windy, there was sure to be a little tumbler of punch ready for him. Perhaps they could be happy together. They used to go on upstairs together on tiptoe, each with a candle, and on a third landing exchange a reluctant good nights. They used to kiss. He remembered well her eyes, the touch of her hand, and his delirium. But delirium passes. He echoed her phrase, applying it to himself. What am I to do? And then he you know is kind of frustrated and stuck in this love but it's it is obviously the situation is different but it captures something essential of those you know early courtship days early feelings of infatuation before a reality sets in and the mother comes calling for you know for the for the wedding bands or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. it's yeah and it's very it's very subtly written and very direct in a way though which which is nice uh, it's not i guess not overbearing is what i would say direct but not too overbearing yeah um i thought it was funny too like the opening scene is is this act of violence between these two married people oh, like yeah. the mother is so the, the the father is an alcoholic and he's like squandered their money and they've lost the the butchery and everything and then I don't even know if butchery is a real word but they we're making up words today though it's in the spirit of the exercise it's it's literally just what we're doing <laughs> I yep. set the tone yep. and we're riding the tone <laughs> and then there's this act of violence with the cleaver and it's it's this unhappy marriage and then she's going to by her very silence is showing her encouragement to her daughter to seduce this man and essentially trick him into mm-hmm. marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And and I just found that so fascinating that we, we start off with this very unhappy marriage. The The woman involved in that marriage then gets her daughter into a marriage... And the daughter is just like this blank slate. Like, I mean, when she, as the dude, Mr. Doran is talking to uh, Mrs. Mooney, Polly Mm -hmm. just sits on his bed and like zones out and doesn't seem to really care either way. She's just this like empty vessel that's, that's like a tool 
and she doesn't have any thoughts of her own, which I found really fascinating. Yeah, that was a nice little switch. It's this; these things also things by by that I mean stories play well with point of view and do it very yeah. quickly and ably. Again, another sign of like a sure a sure literary hand is that he can yeah. do that, and it doesn't feel awkward, and it's and it feels like he conveys a lot with such a little. You know, again, a, a simple oh, yeah. compliment, but one that holds up. You know, if it, if it's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Well, do you think that the the mother character, do you find her to be one of the most memorable so far? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so because she's she's so powerful and well-liked without actually speaking. Mhm. Yeah. Which is interesting. And he seems and intimidated was... when he has to go down to, you know, resolve this. Right, and but at the very beginning, when we see her marriage to the butcher, it seems like she's the one that didn't have the power to stop the downfall of her family, essentially. But then, when she's put in charge of her own finances and everything, she's she's quite powerful and stoic. Mm-hmm. Which we don't see a lot in in uh, female characters from literature from that time. That's not. Right. It's not considered feminine, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not... I mean, maybe we missed... There's always this... Especially when you're dealing with literature that's a little more, I don't know, like, dense or something. Has a lot more history packed into it. But I don't think we miss anything. It seems like she's written in a very, you know, even-handed, if not uh, impressed sort of way. It's almost like he's, you know... She's not heroic or something, but he definitely makes her seem competent and strong and it doesn't seem like he's kind of making that out to be a joke or um a critique or something it seems pretty directly yeah like celebratory of her strength so yeah i read it that way so i was like yeah she's just a straightforwardly assertive competent person you know woman in the story that's how i read an easy segue for me to make amanda because the next story has a completely passive female character so joyce really does it all (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the next story, um, the only woman that is referred to is very much never shown and never spoken to directly. Kind of on purpose, though, I would say this is a story meant to be about two men doing man things in a sense. It's the two gallants is the story I chose. Should we jump into this one? Yeah, let's do it. This is an odd one, but I wanted to pick one that I felt mixed things about. So, Because I, I thought, uh, like I said about Araby, that I just thought was like an excellent little capsule. This one I felt more mixed on, but let's dig into it. At the beginning of Two Gallants, there are two young men, Corley and Lenahan. Is it? Do you think it's Lenahan? Lenahan? Lenahan, but um, okay. because he, uh, I was reading the footnote, it's spelled Corley, but it's pronounced Horley. Oh, okay. Sweet. I will say the footnotes burned me out and I stopped reading. <laughs> we'll get to that in the in the make it stop. But it's but it's technical though. I'll, I'll explain I'll explain my thinking on that later, but yeah, there's I guess we should have said this up top. Again, we assume if you're listening to this listener that you've read these. If you haven't read this and you're thinking about picking it up, you definitely need to get a footnote version. Just find like don't buy one that has no references or no definitions. You really need one. We'll again talk about that at the end. So it's Horley. So Horley and Lenahan 
man. They are thinking of a scheme to take advantage of a young woman that Horley has recently been dating and kind of courting and walking around town with and, you know, spending time in the in the fields or whatever or something. There's some reference to that. So this is where you might have to jump in, though, because what is this scheme? We can't really be sure at first. Did I miss a reference or an illusion or something? Because this is the only one that I reread because I really wanted to make sure that he was building the suspense of like, we don't know what they're after. Does he say it and I just missed it? Or is the point of this story to build suspense? Yeah, it's ne- it's never actually explicitly stated. It's that's, just that's the, great. At the end. Because I yeah. thought the whole point of this story was to evoke that f- curiosity. And in that sense, it really worked on me. But then when I got to the end of it, and I was like, oh, that's a, what a weird little twist. I didn't foresee that conclusion. Then my brain was like, oh, that's probably just because you didn't understand. There was some Irish term, some Dublin slang that like you didn't get. So then I went back over it, and I reread the opening, and their comments conversations and I was like no I'm pretty sure they never say what they're doing so yeah they never okay. do they just we just know that they're trying to take advantage yes, somehow right of this girl so there's yeah. lots of tense little moments and discussions about whether it's gonna work or oh do you think she'll agree do you think she'll do it oh I'm certain you know I got her wrapped around my finger and that he's making all these kind of casually misogynistic claims about her and he's like ah she'll do whatever I say anyway so they scheme to have Hordley go meet up with her and then Lenahan sort of stalks them for a while and keeps an eye on them um, eventually they agree at a meeting place at 10:30 at night to see if she's agreed to whatever mystery plot that, again, the story withholds. In the meantime, um, Lenahan just kind of bums around Dublin. He has a nice meal of peas and it was it ginger beer, I think? Something like yeah. that. Yeah, of course, one of one of everyone's favorite meals. <laughs> a, peas, a plate of peas and some ginger beer. He meets up with some friends casually and just sort of, yeah, just kind of walks around. Um, did I miss anything? Does he do anything really symbolic in that time? <laughs> Maybe. No, not really. He yeah. just bums around. Yeah, you know. just kind of passing time. You know, back before the internet, he's like <laughs> just trying to find stuff to do <laughs> for a couple hours. Anyway, but they do finally meet up. Of course, the climax of the story is him meeting up with uh, Horley again. Horley seems kind of tense and annoyed, um, but he does see him just chat with the young woman he's with. And then when he comes back, Lenahan is you know nervously like, "Oh, did, did she agree? What's going on? What's the what's the deal?" And so the revelation is finally made that he pulls out a small gold coin so apparently the scheme was to convince her to rob her boss basically or her i guess like landlord slash boss because she's employed as a house servant or as they call it in the slang term a slavey or maybe it's slavy but i just read it as slavy and so yeah that, yeah that was the scheme the scheme was basically to get her to steal from her boss essentially that's it <laughs> and that's the story yeah. ends. He pulls out the gold coin, and that's that's the conclusion. Uh, what did you pick up on in this one? What do you want to talk about first? Um, I well, I wasn't sure that it was um, that she was robbing her um, employer. I, okay. I didn't know where that gold coin came from. I didn't know whether it was her her personal savings. So yeah, maybe the, the only reason I'm assuming it's robbery, though you you could be right. The story does not clear it up. Is one of my footnotes. We can compare footnotes. My footnote in the back said the coin is a blah blah blah. I forgot what it was, and it said it would have been about a quarter of her yearly salary, which I guess could imply that like she just saved up. And then has this one coin that, but that amount to me was like, oh, she would never have a quarter of her salary in literally one currency coin. Like she must have just stolen it. But I guess, yeah, it's up to interpretation. Do you have any, does your, does your footnotes or do your footnotes expand on that at all? 
It does not. I have I have like a very slim version of Dubliners. Like the gotcha. footnotes are just like basically vocab and some cultural things, but yeah, it, it didn't have any insights into that scene. But now that like you've said, maybe she, you know, she stole it. She was very furtive, right? She didn't linger after giving the money. Right. She, right. She immediately ran back in and stuff, and yeah. he immediately took off. And didn't look back. Yeah, I could read and this uh, footnote here. Let's do also, Amanda. This is we obviously have different editions. I have the Centennial edition. It's a very fancy, like Penguin Deluxe edition. This for, for this short story, this annotation or this footnote, the final one is the seventieth of this story. Seventy zero. Oh seven my zero. gosh! Yeah, that's what. Well, again, we'll get to this later. But <laughs> it broke me after a while. I was like, I'm not fucking doing this. I'm not reading seventy <laughs> footnotes for a ten for a seven page. That's like ten per page story. Oh my! But gosh. anyway, I will. Um, I will of course read this footnote now. So it's a small gold coin. This would have been a sovereign. The only gold coin in use. So that's the giveaway. It was worth twenty shillings or one pound. A very considerable sum for a slavey, and more than the likes of Corley or Horley and Lenahan could reasonably have hoped for. General servants at this date in Dublin household would have expected to earn between four to eight uh, pounds per annum, though young girls from the country um, who would have been in better health might have been paid even less, and then they give a citation for that. However, wages for domestic service compared favorably with wages in industrial and laboring sectors, especially when room and board is, is included in the equation, which accounts for the fact that the slavey in the story can afford her Sunday finery. So, I don't. it doesn't give an interpretation. I, it definitely leaves it up to the story and the kind of writing to determine but i guess yeah just the fact that it could have been up to a quarter of her year like why would she have that currency then surely she wasn't paid once per quarter you know it's like why would she she would have had smaller denominations so it's just like the fact that this is the only gold coin even in mint it's like how would she have gotten this (laughs) that's that was where my interpretation went but it could be that he talked her into like yeah, backing them um, and giving them some kind of like huge cash a- amount. I don't know, but I interpreted it yeah as like a robbery. Yeah, that that I could see that too. Like looking back on how quickly he moved off, and mm-hmm. Lenahan had to essentially like run after him. Right, right, and the fact to... that they're so c- curious and nervous about the scheme. You know, like, is it what is it going to work? Will she you think she'll really agree? You know, if it's like if you're going to wear somebody down and like borrow money from them, I feel like that's a different sort of tension. This feels like a different high stakes tension. But yeah, um, anything that you wanted to analyze in this one? I, I just pulled some dialogue. Like, I think the ending is a, it's a fun little twist. But the I just wanted to pull, pick up on some of the way the tension is established in the story and the way that Joyce kind of works that in some of the slang and and phrases they used. And um, he says, uh, where, "Where it is? Okay, or where is it rather?" This one is definitely, I feel like, the most quote-heavy, the most dialogue-heavy of the stories that we've read thus far. Yeah, a couple of lines here. Well, tell me, Horley, I suppose you'll be able to pull it off all right, eh? Is she game for that? Asked Lenahan dubiously. You can never know women. She's all right, said Horley. I know the way to get around her, man. She's a bit gone on me. You're what I call a gay Lothario, said Lenahan, and then a proper kind of Lothario, too. And then they tease each other. Uh, And then he talks about the girls he prefers to go 
after. And then at the end, yeah, you know, you can't kid me, Horley. He said, honest to God, said Horley, didn't she tell me herself? He made a tragic gesture. Base betrayer, he said. And then she'll be she'll be there. All right. I always let her wait a bit is how he kind of sums it up. And then they go and meet her. So, I yeah, it's. It is kind of, I, I mean, I guess obviously we have to get back to the title because it's such an ironic, you know, sarcastic t- title. <laughs> there's nothing gallant, there's no gallantry about what they're doing. They're persuading this girl who might be in love with him to uh, to rob her boss, we assume. And so, yeah, their conversation, I, did you read them as kind of pathetic figures, as kind of like masculine figures, as kind of like, because at some point in the reflections, one of them does say like, you know, oh, I'm 31, when's my life going to come together? You know, he's, one of them's, I don't know if I'd say he's painted as kind of a pathetic figure, but he's definitely not successful, and he's definitely just kind of meandering around and doesn't really have a purpose, so to speak. Um, so how did you read them? Did you read them as kind of like boyish, jokey figures, as kind of schemers, as creeps? Like, what do you think? I think that Horley is definitely the creep, and, and the mm-hmm. reason that I remember that it was Horley rather than Corley is because in my in my footnote... Um, in the story, it mentioned something about he had a Florentine accent, and yes. so the the C then becomes a W H sound, and it's oh. meant to be kind of like a play on he's a he's a you know, a womanizer, so he's like right. a man whore or whatever. So like gotcha. the Lee. that's why I remember that. Um, Excellent. Which also plays in with the the title Gallants because um, in the story previous after the race you have um, uh, two guys who um, are in the way of what what is that very first line um, not the first line but it says. Uh, in one of these trimly built cars was a party of four young men whose spirits seemed to be at present well above the level of successful gallicism. Um, so the that's like French, according to my footnotes. So um, get the to be gallant is both to mean like you know you uh, what we understand as gallant, which is you know opening doors or whatever, being um, polite to to women but also it's a it's, you're calling them french they are french it's you have french heritage which i thought was interesting too um cuz um so that uh, anyway that's neither here nor there mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but i just i because i was curious about the title as well um, yeah yeah you're just to be clear your internet dropped through that whole thing but as long as you kept talking i'll leave it in I did. I was just talking about how um, I, I made a reference to the previous story and where gallantism, to be a gallant is not only to be gallant, but also it's a reference to being French. Gotcha. Well, that, yeah, yeah. No, that is interesting. I'll throw this out there because this, this hit my memory and I was just digging through the quotes to try and find it. Isn't one of them a kind of policeman's son? Isn't that made yeah, note Horley of? Yeah, is. Yeah. So it's it's implied that he has kind of got it easy or cushy or that he has inherited maybe that that personality or something it, they definitely make a note of it in terms of his character yeah and his description of of horley is he's got oily black hair mm-hmm. that's in so that you automatically have like a, a distaste for this man and the way that he walks he he doesn't use his eyes to look around he uses his whole body right. to turn and look at things which 
which seems odd. So we automatically have a distrust for Horley, yeah. at least. Lenahan, I think he's meant to be more sympathetic, going back to your original question to me. Um, mm. I think in in my pages 38 through 39 when he is um, kind of discussing his discontentment it's like he has flashes of insight but then ultimately he's just like yeah but you know this is easier so I'm just going to do this now right right but this is the fine scheme <laughs> yeah 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 and it's I think it's pretty this is a theme I think that we see in a lot of these stories is this idea of like you have these grand ideals you have these moments of self-reflection but then you have the instant gratification come up and and you choose the instant gratification rather than the work of of making these big major changes in your life or mm-hmm. in the yeah, you know yeah. so it's a good I way find to put that it. really yeah so i think that's like a major theme that he's kind of working with in this collection yeah definitely i mean it's there are a few characters in any of the stories who are in a sort of comfortable position granted that also makes just for bad uninteresting storytelling <laughs> so very very rarely do we want the, the you know the normal functional and successful person featured uh, that doesn't really work very well but it is kind of it does a lot of economic distress that's a pretty common kind of underlying theme of these or at least if not distress then discomfort and then yeah sort of a life dissatisfaction in that sense i guess it holds up the in, in the literary word modern if you just apply that to the broader like pop culture term modern it does feel kind of modern in that sense it, it embodies a lot of emotions and feelings that again feel pretty up to date about just confusion of, of your life what do you want to do with it what's what are you building toward do you want to you know that kind of stuff shall we move to the final story which i will say so how about this let's do a check-in quick I think that we have chosen the two best stories in the front half to discuss because you picked the other one I would have picked, which is a painful case, which I think might be the best story, though that or Araby. But do you do you think we missed one that was like really good? No, the yes, yeah, so <laughs> I thought the a painful case was also my favorite mm-hmm. so far in the collection. We'll see how it goes later. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I also liked a little cloud. That's the one with the the very feminine male character, Chan- Little Chandler. What, what happens in that one? I forget. Oh, he meets up with an old friend, and the old friend is like, oh. "No, I'll never get married." Yeah, who's he's like really de- dissatisfied, with, and he like yells at his baby at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some bad parenting late at night. Uh, it's like don't <laughs> don't drink with your friends all day and then go home to your family. That's it's like that never ends well in any of these stories. That's like always a, <laughs> a tense, abusive ending to the day. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. yeah, that I thought. You know what story I really wanted to think was better constructed was the one that's the more extreme, harsh version of that. This is probably the only content warning we should have done. But where he beats his child at the end of it with like the switch. He's had like a oh, really yeah, emasculating day and he keeps he's like defeated over and over and then he gets home and takes that on his son. Like I thought that story should have been more impactful, but I feel like the middle of it really dragged and was too bogged down. That was just too, I don't know, that story just did not work in the middle parts. So when I got to the ending I was like, "Oh, this is like really, you know, this is really like tense and disturbing and everything, but it just didn't Yeah, that was the only other one I thought about picking, but yeah, was that was that 
Eveline? I don't remember which one. I, I don't either. It's okay. I, it's fine. I don't remember the names, but you know how I am with names. Um, but let's do, yeah, let's jump into, so we, I, again, when I saw you pick a painful case, I was like, okay, good. At least we'll get, between that and Araby, I was like, those are probably the ones that felt most coherent and complete to me. And um, so I think we picked, probably picked the two that jumped out the most. Uh, but take it away. What's this one about? Yeah, um, so Mr. Duffy is a simple man. He's our main character. He has his set routines and very orderly life and home, nothing out of place. Um, he doesn't seem to be lonely and, in fact, only socializes with his family when he absolutely has to, according to social norms. So he sees them, like, twice a year, if that. Mm-hmm. Um one day at the theater, he does enjoy theater, and that's like his one splurging thing that he does. Uh, one day at the theater, he meets Mrs. Sinico and her daughter, and her daughter's grown, so Mrs. Sinico is, you know, in her 40s. Mm-hmm. Over time, Mr. Duffy and Mrs. Sinico meet up frequently and become intellectually entangled. Uh, Mr. Duffy shares his philosophies, his opinions, his ideals. And it seems that Mrs. Sinico falls in love with him, or at least with the situation that she's in, because she is very unhappily married, and she is very lonely as her daughter is grown now. Yeah, it seems um, like she's not being, uh, shall we say, stimulated in any other part of her yeah. life. <laughs> and you feel yeah, free to throw that word wide open. It, that can be interpreted however you want. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a very fitting word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> When she makes a move on Duffy, she kisses his hand. Um, he rebuffs her and cuts off all ties to her because he's like, everything has to be out in the open. I will not just, you know, right. in- involve myself in a love affair. Um, a few years later, I think he said four years later, he yeah. reads oh, yeah. in the paper that she had an accident trying to cross the rail tracks. Throwback to our intro. That's right. Um, <laughs> there's evidence she may have been under the influence of alcohol at the time. And in fact, like in the newspaper clipping that he read, the daughter said that yeah. she led a fairly sad existence where she was at home and started drinking and her daughter had kind of encouraged her to join like the their version of Alcoholics Anonymous so yeah it's the importance of hobbies folks you got to have hobbies and you got to try and keep keep a social circle you know maintain and try and crop your your, not crop um what's the like gardening word I want maintain but with gardening well anyway cultivate cultivate or tend to I guess yeah it cultivates way better you got to cultivate your social have a rich social life because if you rely on one strange man (laughs) to (laughs) to like talk to you about (laughs) things you know life and things uh that's that's spells trouble for sure yeah Yep. An intense one for sure. This is the one where I, the quote I wanted to pull or discuss is the conclusion because I thought it was the best conclusion so far. Yeah, where um, after reading the the newspaper clipping and he goes through like three or four different emotions and reactions to her death. Oh yeah, yeah, and he. Yeah, so I thought that was. Really it ends well in darkness, as many of these stories do. Joyce definitely knows his kind of archetypal. <laughs> he knows the archetypes to mess with or play with, uh, and this is he's kind of out there in the dark and is observing the train tracks. Kind of, I think maybe even where she was hit. Not he's not standing at the spot or something, but he's watching that 
that place in Dublin. And mm-hmm. it says uh, a couple endings here. Beyond the river, he saw a goods train winding out of Kingsbridge Station like a worm with a fiery head winding through darkness, obstinately and laboriously. It passed slowly out of sight, but still he heard in his ears the laborious drone of the engine reiterating the syllables of her name. He turned back the way he had come, the rhythm of the engine pounding in his ears. He began to doubt the reality of what memory told him. He halted under a tree and allowed the rhythm to die away. He could not feel her near him in the darkness, nor her voice touch his ear. He waited for some minutes listening. He could hear nothing. The night was perfectly silent. He listened again, perfectly silent. He felt that he was alone. It's, yeah, it's really potent. And those, there's like a hundred things going on. Let's unpack some of them. But Joyce doesn't repeat those kinds of sentence starters like that without a reason. That's just not how he writes. But it's it's right. very focused on him. It's very immediate in the moment with, you know, the, the senses he's enduring the train, an obstinate and laborious kind of vehicle, this thing that he wants to evoke a memory of her, but but you know ultimately fails to. He's under a tree, you know, getting this knowledge, having this realization. He's the darkness is encroached on him, and then of course the final word choice to kind of to to discuss or really unpack is what do you think of the phrase "perfectly silent," especially in relation to this man who likes his solitary life, or at least we thought he did. Any thoughts on that phrase? Because it's it is a perfect little twist of a phrase because in a sense it's Mm -hmm. what he always wanted you know he pushed her away and wouldn't have endured the shame of that relationship or whatever but also at this point of course perfect silence just means he truly will never connect seemingly with anyone else again like he missed his one chance and it's you know and she's dead so i don't yeah what did you think any language in there to to unpack there's a lot happening in the conclusion yeah so i thought two things about that is uh, the perfect silence and then he turns away from it and walks away from it i think that's pretty telling Mm -hmm. um but also the the mirroring of this the ending to the to the beginning in this story in the beginning he's alone and he enjoys it but at the end when he's haunted by he's he's being haunted by her yeah and then she's no longer there it's no longer the pleasant alone aloneness but now it's loneliness so right, i like right. how that's kind of mirrored um in the story i thought that was a really well done by joyce talk about a modern i feel like this is like a modern slang i don't think this is slang but just like a saying but have you heard somebody say um, it's good to have alone time, but not lonely time. Have you like heard an expression like that before? I feel like that's something people say these days. Um, yeah, it is an important, a critical distinction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. That like it's yeah <laughs> important to look after yourself and and feel comfortable, but then also there's a big gap between alone and lonely. Those are two different states. Yeah. This story kind of perfectly illustrates it. He he makes for an odd study. You know, I don't think he's like the most interesting, in a sense, he's the most interesting character so far because he's, I think, the most clearly drawn. I don't think he's the most like sympathetic though, or it's not like he's a person who people would want to hang with, not that he even would hang with anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So yeah, in that sense, it's kind of curious because I'm like, ah, yeah, I didn't like him the most, but that's the thing is sometimes when authors fixate on these really tortured or broken people, these really strange maybe people on the little bit of the outskirts of society. It reminded me of Toni Morrison. Remember that priest, that that strange Mm. priest that she wrote that chapter about? It's kind of reminded me of that, where it's just like, yeah, sometimes... Uh, if you have find the right literary mind with the right odd person, it's like, ah, it's just so clear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What else should we, what, what else are we analyzing here from this story? Anything else to unpack? Um, I really enjoyed the, the progression of his emotions after 
reading the newspaper. So mm-hmm. when his initial reaction um, when he got home and, and reads it to himself at home is... Uh, it says the whole narrative of her death revolted him and it revolted him to think that he had ever spoken to her of what he held sacred. Um, and he mm-hmm. says, not merely had she degraded herself, she had degraded him. He saw the squalid tract of her vice, miserable and malodorous. He's just like, I mean, laying it on there, like the hatred, the disdain, the dismissiveness, right? And he's like, oh, to think that I would have been touched by her um, destructive ways, right? Because everything has to be pristine. He has to be pristine and pure. He's he's, um, abstinent for a reason and, you know, he doesn't believe in uh, sexual anything, right? He even writes that one sentence in one of his notes, like um, something about like you shouldn't have sex and and that's why men and women can't be friends is because it'll inevitably lead to sex yeah there's so. some strange uh, i don't know what the literary term for it is but it's when you it's when you have one sentence go a b and then the next one goes b you know what i mean it's like inverted yeah. <laughs> or whatever, whatever literary trick that's called but yeah because yeah. it's something about how it's like you can't that's the trouble with having a wife versus a friend neither is fulfilling or something it's like each will will only lead to lacking or something it's that's his twisted worldview you know yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then later, it, it, he starts reflecting, and he's like, well, what am I talking about? Like, she's the only person in the world that I've actually, like, had any kind of connection to, and I've mm-hmm. lost the chance to, to connect. I am I am no longer connected to humanity in any way. Yeah, off there in the dark. He, he maybe shouldn't be so surly at his socialist meetings, you know? He's got some ideas, like she told him to publish, but it's just he couldn't, he can't even, it's like he secretly went to these, like, socialism, you know, uh, organizing meetings, but apparently just could not, could not get along with the people there. They're all, all too unintelligent or something, not up to his standards, you know? Exactly, like, in that, what was his reason for not writing? I forgot, he had, like, a very specific, I don't, yeah, I think per- he's probably something just like it's perverse or it'll it distort i don't know yeah i should find that quote i'm just guessing but it's it'd be something like that like oh it's it's so as soon as you write it down it's it's corrupted or ah god i forgot what he said about it should we pull the quote we can you know we can always edit this of course we should pull the quote it's something funny It's, um, I found the paragraph here. She asked him why he did not write out his thoughts. For what, he asked her with careful scorn, to compete with phrase mongers and capable of thinking consecutively for 60 seconds, to to submit himself to the criticisms of an obtuse middle class which entrusted its morality to policemen and its fine arts to impress impresarios. So, yeah, I mean, he just doesn't, he doesn't think the current relations of society can, can do him justice, you know? It's like they can't even he can't be connecting with anybody out there in the uh, in the social conscious. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Any other thoughts on this one? No, I I just I really enjoyed it because I feel like I've got I've definitely met people like Mr. Duffy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, and that's another man. It's it's comes up again and again. And again, these are signs that this is a, a classic worth remembering and keeping in the canon. But it is it's strange because so much of it is so 
disconnected, but then at the core of it is just a person type so well drawn where you th- you can't help but connect to it or relate it to people you know or something. And so, yeah, w- when there is a sharpness to the character work, it, it comes through. Even if like the, even if you know the the critical turning point in the story is her touching his hand or whatever, and he's like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, like that doesn't obviously. <laughs> this all reads kind of silly today. Um, yeah, it just doesn't. Yeah, it just doesn't quite have the the tension you'd expect in the way you'd expect it. But you know, the fundamental thing about it is is understandable. So it's mm-hmm. yeah, p- pretty good, pretty strong praise there. Um, any other thoughts on this one? Nope. Okay, let's do our ending segments then. We always end uh, book club part ones with two segments. We'll start with uh, making a list, obviously, because you know lists are the king of the content. We always want to make a list here. <laughs> you chose the theme for this one, so I'll let you kick it off. What uh, what are we listing here? And the top three references to religion, whether it is yeah. a character, a location, or no shortage, some symbolism, whatever. Yeah. That he, yeah, that's his. That's his whole thing. Joyce really likes to use uh, religious symbolism, I guess, in his writing. Yeah, definitely. Start us off with your. We, we'll do a top three. So, what's your number three? Yeah, my number three is in the story Clay, which I also I enjoyed that story too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Maria's observation that she didn't much care for Protestants at first. But now she Classic. thinks that they're pretty nice, but she thinks that they're still pretty quiet and serious. Um, yeah. Which is funny because I think that's the view of, like, from Protestants about Catholics is like, man, they're 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 too religious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I would then, if you're at that impasse, you know, let me just solve the Irish religious crisis of the last, like, 500 years or whatever it is. <laughs> let me just, mm-hmm. it, it, just judge that. Make the final judgment about whose priests and, and holy people have weirder outfits or more elaborate outfits. That's what I think that can settle <laughs> it. Because to me, that's the baseline. Because it's like, if you can, if you can have your ceremonies and stuff and your, and your formal events in just like a small space with you know really bland attire and like simple chairs and if you can do it in the basement somewhere and you're just like yeah we're just having our reading from our book and doing our thing yeah it's whatever but if you build up an elaborate apparatus of costumes and (laughs) and props you're basically doing theater at that point like i think that's the one so whoever's doing that is the those are the ones (laughs) that's um (laughs) where that's where my judgment kicks in i think uh my number three is the from the first story the sisters there's an incredibly tense and awkward conversation about a priest who died and they're at like his wake or I don't know what the term would be for, for then, but they're at his service, you know, to honor him. Would it, uh, the quick version of that story, we won't analyze it too deeply, but what's going on there? It's very awkward. You know, they really don't know what to make of his life. They're kind of expressing their regrets about him. Any, was there some kind of symbol to that or symbolic reading? Yeah, I have no idea that I've read that story and I was just like, oh, I I mean, I, I hope that I'm not interpreting it weirdly, but it, it because the main character was um, like a, was being tutored by the priest at one point. Right? Yeah. And, and I thought maybe it was a sexual thing. You know, that's obviously yeah. a, where the mind goes for a lot of like tension in literary stories is like, well, is there yeah. what are the feelings or what kind of feelings and how intense? But yeah, I just couldn't tell if it was regret over his life was too short. Or if he, yeah, but that's, I read it that way too. And then I thought maybe I should unpack this or take, you know, really read into some of the lines, but I don't know if that reading was there. I, I kind of thought about it too. I don't know. Nothing yeah, jumped know. out to me. 
Yeah, the the priest, like, didn't he kind of, like, lose... Like, they were worried about his, his um, mental health because he had, like, dropped the chalice at one point and, yeah. like, reacted very poorly to it. But it's like... This, it was the chalice meant to represent something else? Like he's sinned in some way, like by dropping the chalice. Yeah, like, which is a holy artifact, like not artifact, but a holy item that they use. Right, like, right. Yeah, that he. So, and then yeah. the other obvious reading. Let's let's say that that moment was symbolic or representative of something broader uh, then I couldn't quite get into like well is that chalice can have some kind of gendered interpretations but then I thought yeah. maybe it's something simpler just like he's becoming a less religious or devout person maybe it's that basic but that seemed too simple or I, I don't know <laughs> it's um, a story worth doing on its own we just didn't give it the time but uh, that just jumped out when you put this list up that was the first thing I thought it was just kind of like was that what was going on with that priest was he having an affair yeah. with a boy was he just becoming lazy was he like <laughs> i don't know it was a very strange uh tense thing um how about for your number yeah. two my number two um is from the story uh, eveline yeah i didn't remember this reference at all so you'll have to you'll have to unpack it so eveline she's the one who um was going to um elope with her sailor boyfriend, but then at the last oh. minute, just is like afraid to leave. Okay. Yeah, yeah I remember. Yeah, she stays. Um, so her dad is like, she has a really rocky relationship with her dad because he's kind of a tyrant, and especially after her mother died, and he's like threatening mm -hmm. to like beat her and stuff like that if she doesn't comply with his demands, which is to like give him all of her money and then be like you're doing a terrible job maintaining this house <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, yeah um so on page 23 which is the beginning of um the story when she's kind of explaining uh when evelyn is explaining like her home life it says uh about her dad yet during all those years she had never found out the name of the priest whose yellowing photograph hung on the wall above the broken harmonium beside the colored print of the promises made to blessed margaret mary alicoke he had been a school friend of her father whenever he showed the photograph to a visitor her father used to pass it with a casual word he is in melbourne now uh, so i just thought that that was so funny because mm -hmm. Like he's a priest in Melbourne. She she's known her father her whole life, and she doesn't know who this dude is. Like she doesn't know his name, but he always takes the time to pass a, the picture of the the guy to people in the home, and to like it's like this reverence for this is my friend. He's in Melbourne now. And yeah, he's a priest. Yeah, but she doesn't know his name. I just thought that was such a funny little detail to kind of pick out. It's reverence for religion without any true understanding for the people in it i suppose or you know you could look at it in so many symbolic ways i suppose yeah yeah i think that's that's a good one to pull i yeah i completely forgot that reference but that story yeah that story was uh was pretty good better than i better than i remembered 
Um, <laughs> my number two is that I already alluded to this earlier, but at the end of that really depressing story when the boy is being beaten, he does cry out. So it's a re- religious reference, not a religious person. You know, obviously the boy might be because he's begging for his life in front of his abusive father. But he says, I'll say a Hail Mary for you. I'll say a Hail, Hail Mary for you, Pa. If you don't beat me, I'll say a Hail Mary. Those are That's the end of the story. So really, uh, a really distressing and desperate episode to, again, a story that I think I would have picked for analysis if I had connected with the middle parts more, but I felt like that one was kind of flat. Just a really depressing ending. I, I've said that word like seven times, but <laughs> yeah. Any yeah. any thoughts on that one? Did that one stick with you? Uh, yeah, I just remember the, the story being very bleak throughout because he's like... He's so empty as a character, but yeah, the the beating of the kid and and his invoking of the religious aspects of stuff, I was like, oh, that's pretty telling. Like, <laughs> the reliance on something that's not gonna save you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, not a. His father did not seem particularly. Wasn't that the also the one of the emasculating kind of depressing things that happened to his father throughout the day was that he he wanted to flirt with someone but she didn't or something. It was such a strange. You know, one of those strange, another unrequited connection that doesn't quite happen. Wasn't that that story? Or am I confusing it with a different one? Yeah, he was at the the bar, and uh, this is the yeah. It's the story of the guy who is probably going to get fired from his job. But yeah, he like. Yeah is the strong man among his friends, but he, and he gets into like an arm wrestling match and he loses uh, twice. Depra- to the distressing, same dude. distressing indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. So that was, yeah, that was my other one. Cause it's that, it just, I don't know. It's, we, we don't really, again, we didn't give it the time in this episode to unpack it, but it is a pretty potent, sad moment. Um, how about for your number one reference to religion then? Uh, so my number one is, uh, speaking of chalices, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's from the story Araby. Whoop whoop. And so is mine. Um, oh, funny. <laughs> so it's this. Um, I enjoyed the use of the the chalice symbolism to kind of describe like he's on a, a holy mission essentially to um, uh, a holy quest. Here mm-hmm. and it's and this one is actually when he's shopping with I believe his aunt I want to say. So um, he it says there the shrill litanies of shop boys who stood on guard by the barrels of pigs' cheeks, the nasal chanting of street singers, who sang a come all you about O'Donovan Rossa, blah blah blah. These noises converged in a single sensation of life for me. I imagined that I bore my chalice safely through a throng of foes. Her name sprang to my lips at moments in strange prayers and praises, which I myself did not understand, blah, 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 blah. So yeah. I just thought that that was really interesting. Like, it's such a boy's imagination there to... Yeah. And just so cute in a way and endearing. So I my re- quick reference, my number one was from that story also. But it's as you rightly noted earlier, when it says she goes to the convent, it's probably for education. But again, that's still a religious, you know, it's through a religious institution or, or however you want to phrase that. So that was my mm-hmm. number one. It's just the it just felt like another subtle layer in that story of this person. I mean, even if you don't want to really read into the like religion and celibacy angle of that, it's just the idea of like he doesn't get to see her that often. She's often gone. He's like stealing 
stealing these glances when he has a moment to, because otherwise she's not around. Or uh, yeah, and then also I think just culturally in terms of um, the 100-ish years since this was written, I think the idea of having a forbidden romance be connected in some way to religion. Think of like Fleabag from that really hit show from a year or two ago. Did you ever watch Fleabag? No. Well, there's a, rom- a romantic interest who's a priest in that story. It's very, it's quite intense um, and has great humor and is really good. That show's great. You should. It's an Amazon one, so I don't know if you have Amazon. If not, you don't have I to do. sign up for Amazon. You know, it's fine. <laughs> we can we can fight <laughs> you know our corporate overlords. But anyway, the show is amazing. I mean, regardless of what you think of that uh, that company, the show's yeah, it was fantastic. But it reminded me of that. There was a I think a movie last year about a Catholic a nun who like has a sexual awakening. What movie was that? Anyway, it's just a very rich and subtle thing to include that has held up well in the culture. Like this, again, this idea of tying a, a unrequited romance to a religious figure. So mm. tough to have a religion based on celibacy, but what can you do? You know, <laughs> what can you do? Um, any <laughs> other thoughts on Araby or any of the other references? Nope. Yeah, some good ones, too. Though, uh, interesting that our stories we chose and analyzed deeply, we didn't go too far into it, huh? Yeah. Interesting. I, think, uh, f- I chose the stories that I, I found thematically I, I really resonated with, I suppose. Yeah, me too. And it there were a couple we could have picked and didn't, so keep we'll keep that in mind for the back half. Um, let's end now, then, Amanda, with our final, true final segment of the book club which is going to be Please Continue, Make It Stop, a segment that is explained in the title. <laughs> We're each going to pick one thing <laughs> that we've really enjoyed that we want to continue seeing in the second half of the read, and then one thing that we wish would stop. Should I go with my Make It Stop? Because I did spoil it earlier. Yeah, it's it's pretty much my Make It Stop as well. Yeah, the footnotes are a problem in this edition, and I'll try and clarify what I mean by this. Um in a seven-page story, there should not be seventy footnotes, no matter what you're, no matter what you're reading. That uh, ratio is insane. That's just definitely not what I was looking for. Then again, it is all optional because they're not. So the way mine is done, again, I have the Penguin Centennial Collection. It's a very handsome collection with a good intro and stuff. And I get that at some point you're like, we have to write the version that throws out all the, doesn't take any breaks and doesn't throw anything out. Like this is the maximalist. You can't miss an interpretation version. Uh, here's what I would like though. Let's, let's divide and conquer then because all of my footnotes are in the back of the book. None of them are on the page of the story. So they're actually not footnotes. Mm-hmm. They're end notes. I guess we'd, we'd say. Um, I want language only stuff to be on the page because I don't want to have to take more than two seconds to do it. (laughs) I want to, if I see a term I've never heard of, I want to, or an old slang term, I want to quickly glance down and be like, oh, that means a lot of them are just references to poop. Okay, thanks, Shakespeare. Like, another way to say poop again. <laughs> you know, it's like, all right, cool. Now I know that there are, you know, it's like a either scatological joke or some kind of sex joke. Not, not you know, I'm being flipped, but, but it's like, I want that version there. And then if you have to write more than a, two sentences or more than a definition, put those in the back. The problem is that, because all of mine are in the back, when I probably should go check a definition for my own comprehension, I've just it's trained me to like resist and be lazy because it's just too many. I'm just overwhelmed. I'm like, I'm not checking again. It's I'm not gonna flip right. 
all the way to the like I will flip to the back if I need a thematic analysis or if like there are so many goddamn fittingly enough a good pun there are goddamn Bible references in these stories that like mm-hmm. if you go to the back of my end notes like. There, per story, there's probably 10 Bible allusions that I would never know about. So that's, you know, again, that's helpful. It helps me analyze and find out what his kind of cultural context was. But man, it, it really broke me. I was like, I cannot do this more. I like, and, and it even in a couple of stories led me to think I may have misunderstood something pretty important here. Like I thought it was something that it wasn't, but I just can't take it. You know, I really want the definitions one pulled up onto the, into the page. Yeah, I think so for for my make it stop um i don't have i think nearly as many footnotes as you do because for the entire collection i only have like 200 footnotes gotcha for all of gotcha the end of the, so um and and most of the footnotes are actually just things about uh defining certain words and um certain allusions and and that's it there's not much as far as like cultural notes or anything like that um which I, mine are all in the back as well. So mine are endnotes. Um, the de- definition ones, I, I agree. I think I would have preferred it to be actually on the page because flipping back and forth with as few endnotes as I have, like per story, it's like, you know, maybe three or four for me. But I just, fi- flipping back and forth, it's, it's very much taking me out of the story. But at yeah. the same time, I'm wondering, like, because I don't have the no- the same amount of notes that you have, am I losing out on some of the the nuances of his work? But at the same time, I'm like, you know what? Like, that's fine because I have a basic understanding of like what was going on at the time. I may not have as in depth an understanding of of some of the cultural um, I just, references yeah. and stuff like that. But I might be inventing. I, I might be inventing a false binary. But I do feel like there is a distinction where between a quick definition and like four sentences of contextualization, and I that's oh yeah, it's for like sure. if I had to go through this and ed- be the editor in this, as I often you know imaginarily employ myself here as like some weird editor guy. But it's like <laughs> I would I could go through these I think and break them down and be like this one goes yeah. in bucket A, this one's a bucket B because it's for sure whew, it's driving me nuts. I did just double check so the the I don't know which story I should have checked the title, but the least or the lowest number one of these has is seventeen and notes and then the final one which is the longest story by far which we'll get to is called the dead that almost has 100 it has 98 holy crap yeah and then like i said the two gallons has 70 and some i would say the average is probably 30 or 40 but like there's some highs and you know lows in that obviously yeah Yeah. it just it feels like there's got to be a better system than this especially since a lot of them not well maybe not a lot but i would say about 40 percent of them are one sentence definition and then, you know, there's a lot of them, too. They're like, here's a paragraph about, you know, the, at the time, this person was the mayor of Dublin, but then when they were outvoted and this policy and then it's just like, OK, that go ahead and dump in the back because it's not going to help me understand this story. And if it is, it's going to help right. me understand in a really historic uh, historical context way, which is fine. That's a great way to read a story and you should. But, yeah, it really broke me down. I just couldn't. I just, at some point, I just stopped going to the back. I was like, well, I'm either going to yeah. understand this on its own merits or I'm not. And that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, by far my make it stop. Unfortunately, though, Amanda, for us, it will not stop because I can't, <laughs> I can't re-edit this book <laughs> in the middle of the book. Uh, it just is what it is. So I'll continue to be broken down by that. Um, how about for your please yep. continue then? 
Mine is, I just love his opening lines. His, I think that he's really great at his introductions. He sets up characterization really well and setting, and he's not he's not making it too flowery you know it's it's very concise actually mm. the way that he sets up um his characters and i just really enjoy it and i just pulled a, an example here from the short story eveline mm-hmm. um this is the very first lines she sat at the window watching the evening invade the avenue her head was leaned against the window curtains and in her nostrils was the odor of dusty cretone she was tired and that was like the first introduction, and I was like, "Man, I, see, I just really enjoy that. I think it's it sets it up nice. It's snappy. The word invade the avenue, you get a, an instant sense of mood there. It's it's great. I just think yeah. that he does that really well. And for an author who has made his let's say undergrad level reputation, which to be fair, I, that's that's as high as my education goes. You, you've got a master's knowledge, but like. I think he makes his undergrad level reputation is like, he's the stream of consciousness guy. There will be weird yeah. illusions and way too many of them. And it will be maybe hard to follow. And some of the sentence flow won't actually make any sense. That's part of the fun. These have not had that. <laughs> I mean, it's his sentence flow. His syntax is, has some definite like choices and style to it. But in the, in the end, it's just the nice balance of like the sentences you just read. He knows when to pick the right word and then end a sentence quickly. And then also he can Mm -hmm. linger when he wants, like it's not, it definitely does not fit the expectation. I think that a lot of people who like just hear his name or again, like you take that English class in college, you have to, or whatever your level is or experience or knowledge, like this doesn't really fit. I would say his reputation, the, the density of the double, and illusions like i just said there's 70 reference to 70 footnotes and one like it's definitely you know a dense uh sense of setting and that requires a lot of like background knowledge or patience to if you really want to unpack it all or something but the the kind yeah. of just uh in the most simple sense literary description flow whatever phrase we want to use there style it's yeah it's not so bad it's pretty pretty accessible pretty good yeah yeah, and, and I've read um, Portrait of a, an Artist as a Young Man, and that was, my my God, trying to read that. Like, it's it's two different authors, almost, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is maybe, maybe I did say something in, enlightening in the first half then. The, the most accessible thing by an inaccessible, you know, artist. For or, sure. Like, it, yeah. maybe it is that, actually, you know. I was, I didn't say that not jokingly, but I also wasn't sure if that, that was actually true, but maybe it is true. Oh, it's true. You know? Yeah, I think it's true. It definitely is more so than Ulysses, which is, I only had to read a chunk of for a class once. Uh, only, like, a segment or a chapter, I guess. It's kind of like the Brothers Karamazov is often taught that way, where it's like, here, just read this part. You know, don't read the, right. don't read the 900 pages. Let's just read this chunk of it. Like, that's how Ulysses was. I, I read a scene or a I don't know who knows what to call it a story, so yeah, interesting. Um, my please continue is well. Let me let me pose this annoying rhetorical question to you, Amanda. What do we what do we like about short story collections again? What what do we want them to do? Just broadly, we want them to be interesting, snappy, and kind of up for interpretation. I, I like it. I was going for diverse or maybe unpredictable or creative. Remember with mm-hmm. Tom Hanks? What did we admire about Tom Hanks? The man maybe <laughs> cannot construct sentences in the way we would like, but what? Adventurous and daring. 
he, he like tried, really yeah. took some chances. <laughs> this collection fits that description perfectly. He is taking chances. You don't know from one story to the next what's going to happen, what it's going to feature, what kinds of characters will be in it. That to me has been the joy. Has just been seeing like, okay, what what's going to be next? What's going to be the setting, the conditions, the circumstances? What kind of lives will the characters have? Like, I think in that very basic appealing sense of what short story collections should be and should be doing, this is fulfilling that. Again, I, I will reiterate from the beginning what I mentioned. I don't think this is quite blowing me away. It, uh, my reaction, again, has been a little more muted than I was hoping. I really thought this would, like, thrill me, and I don't know if it is, but it has been quite good. And so I'm at least having that enjoyment of, like, yes, I know he's going to try something. I know it's going to be thought out and careful and, and interesting to an extent. Um, again, maybe yeah. not blowing me away or something, and, and maybe, a like, a touch too dense with the Dublin history illusions, you know, 70 endnotes is breaking me down, but on the whole my please continue is just like get a variety of characters in there, get a variety of ages yeah. and experiences and people living very different lives and so far the only type of person we haven't seen Amanda is a rich person, I think That's true. We've seen so many types of people, but not a successful or rich person, not directly so yeah. that I think is the one lingering maybe avenue for him to peer into yeah maybe that'll be the next half yeah we'll, we'll find out um excellent any final thoughts on dubliners by james joyce so far nope I'm, I'm enjoying it so far fantastic well listeners if you stuck with us through this one we thank you very much check us out next friday we always post our book club episodes on fridays so if you listen to this one when it came out check back next week we'll cover the second half of the collection which do you want to pull those story names quickly i guess it doesn't you know it's the second half. Yeah, we've got <laughs> we've got the Human Stain by Philip Roth. We've got Soccer and Sun and Shadow by Eduardo um, Galliano, and we have A Good Family by A. H. Kim. Oh, those are I meant the stories for next week in the book club. But oh, those are sorry. No, no, no. Just to cl- <laughs> no, no. It's good. Just to clarify, those are the next books we're doing after Dubliners. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. give us yeah, another the next. Yeah, another couple weeks for those to come out. Yeah. <laughs> the next story is Ivy Day in the Committee Room. And then the final one is The Dead, which is the longest. It's 50 pages. The, and these have been short. I, I know we hinted at that throughout this episode. Uh, if you, again, haven't read these and are just listening anyway for the conversation, with, these have been really brief. Some of them are only six, maybe seven pages. So, yeah. We'll see what he does with a longer form. Okay, well, with that, folks, again, we thank you so much for listening all the way through. We've been the Lightly Literary Podcast. Again, find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. Keep up with us there. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. Bye.